Mad Professor, whenever I'm in town, I listen to WCBN FM and Arba W Crazy for people with more than two years. Okay, this is Jane Smiley. You can't listen to Dead Riders, but you can listen to Living Riders on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. Thanks. Good afternoon. You've I'm in got a good mood now. <laughs> you are. That's Jane Smiley, everybody, and hope you all listening out there are in a good mood too. Jane, thanks for joining me for Living Writers today. You're welcome. My pleasure. And and thanks for the shiny new station ID too oh. that we heard at the top of the hour. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> Can't listen to dead writers, but no. you can listen to living writers. <laughs> nice. And one. there are a lot of them. We live in a golden age of living writers. I think so. We're. I think we're lucky. Well, me too. We, we too. And it's, I feel lucky that you're here on the show, Jane. Thanks. You're, you've come to town. You've done a reading. And then you're going to have um, a, in, you're going to be in conversation with Stephen Moore on Thursday, April 3rd at five o'clock at UMA. Um, and before before we get to talking, Jane, I'm going to read your short bio here. Jane Smiley is a novelist and essayist. Her novel, A Thousand Acres, won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award in 1992. And her novel, The All Two Travels, The All True Travels and Adventures of Liddy Newton, won the 1999 Spur Award for Best Novel of the West. She's been a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters since 1987. Her novel, Horse Heaven, was shortlisted for the Orange Prize in 2002, and her latest novel, Private Life, was chosen as one of the best books of 2010. 
by pretty much everyone. <laughs> in addition to novels for adults, she has written several works of nonfiction, including 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel, A History and Anatomy of the Novel as a Form, and The Man Who Invented the Computer, an account of the complex and sometimes amazing circumstances that led to one of the most important inventions of the 20th century. She's also published four volumes of her horse series for young adults. And we've got a good horse on the table with yes, us Yes, that's today. number two, volume two. And what was the first one? Was it Jewels? The, the Georges and the Jewels. The There's actually five by now. The last one in hardback was uh, G Wiz, which was published last fall. I saw actually saw the title of that one. I couldn't get a hold of it. I thought I love that. What? Why the title? Why G Wiz? Was that a horse's name or? Well, actually, it started out as um, Mr. Wizard, and the and the publicist was worried that people would get confused and think it was about science. So I had to change it. But I wanted to continue to use the word whiz as the horse's nickname. And so I thought, would you whiz? And then I looked up horses on the Internet computer um, horse pedigree database. And there had been a horse named G. Wiz, who was a very long-lasting horse who had many, many starts and many, many wins. And I thought, okay, we'll name it that, and we'll dedicate it to him. Oh, how auspicious. <laughs> yes, I thought it was great. And so, Jane, when did horses come into your life? Like, when? I really don't remember. Um, I, I do know that around the time I was five, when I was um, in St. Louis near where my mom lived, there was a little... Uh, pony rides where they would strap you onto the pony and chase the pony around at a, at a trot around a little maze. And I think maybe you got to go around twice, but I was around a maze, even a though maze, not a circle, just a little maze, but uh, that would slow the pony down. That would be better than a circle because <laughs> they can get going at a pretty good clip, can, those yeah. ponies. But um, they they strapped you in, and you had to trot, and so you got used to it. And I was always, always, always after my mother to um, let me go to the pony rides, and then buy me a horse, and then. So, how old were you when you had your your first a pony? Well, my mother remarried um, when I was eleven, and when I was about, and and they let me take riding lessons, so I did that for three years, and then when I was um, about thirteen, fourteen, I guess I was fourteen. Um, I did get a horse of my own in the spring, and it was very exciting. And, um, you know, it was a total addiction, so I had to have more. And I, I kept at it mm, for another eight years. Then I went to college. And then um, when I was in my 40s, I decided to start in again, and I did. So there was a time without horses, a patch without yeah, horses. Yeah, I just sort of set it aside because I didn't have the money, and it wasn't going to fit into my life and um but then after I won the Pulitzer I remember when I won the Pulitzer I said to my daughter honey she she was uh what eight or nine at the time I said honey what would you like you know we have some money because I won this big prize and she said I want a Chanel suit (laughs) and I no she I was not expecting that I thought you were going to say Misty of Chincoteague (laughs) she said what do you want and I said I want a horse and I thought (laughs) That's so funny that she wants the Chanel suit and I want the horse. (laughs) But so horses came back. Was was your first book, um, Jane? Was it um, Barn Blind? Yes. Was was that about? Was that because I didn't get a chance to read that one? Was that because that was your first published book after the MFA at Iowa Mm -hmm. and also your PhD at Iowa? Yes. Both. Yes. Um, Yeah, that was about some 
some people in the horse business. And so I knew the horse business pretty well, and I was interested in sort of the family dynamics. Um, But it it was mostly made up. That's what happens with a novel. You get an idea, and then you make up all around it. And then you worry, well, is so-and-so going to be upset that they that I put them in my novel, and then the chances are, well, sometimes they're upset, sometimes they're flattered, and then there's this whole other group of people who say, why was I in, not interesting enough to go in one of her novels? You can't win. You can't win. So you just keep on going. <laughs> well, you can always, do you say, well, you're in the next one? Is that what you've started No, they saying? don't actually address it to you. <laughs> they just, you know, you know, they, they talk about other writers, so you know they're talking about you too, so. Oh, Okay, or you see it in their it's eyes. It's okay. <laughs> as your as your career progresses and you've made up more and more and more stuff, um, then it's easier to make up stuff, and you don't really take um, real life as your specific inspiration. I mean, when I came to understand this was when I read Virginia Woolf's first book, The Voyage Out, and she. Even Virginia Woolf had to base it on um, relatives and people that she knew. Even so I, Virginia. Even Virginia. So, so I realized that it wasn't unusual that everybody um, everybody started somewhere, you know. So the thing to do is, you know, okay, I want to write a book about a serial killer. Well, I don't know, know anything about serial killers. What am I going to do? So I'm going to make up the serial killer. Oh, I know. I'll make Aunt Sarah the serial killer. So then the serial killer and Aunt Sarah kind of mesh in my mind, even though Aunt Sarah would never do anything like that. Knock on wood. <laughs> but now the serial killer has a personality and um, a characteristic way of doing things. So. so when you're thinking about the latest ideas, then what I, what... Maybe we'll start since we've mentioned the the series for young younger readers. Okay. Why, why did you decide to to write for that audience, that age group, or did it just start well, happening? Well, I was talking to an editor at Random House, um, and we were talking about kids' books. She was a children's book editor, and she said, "Well, they, you know, remember all those horse books?" And I said, "Sure." She said, "There aren't really any of those anymore." And I thought, "Oh, I can do that. I would like to do that." Um, so. Because when you're saying all those horse books, it would be like Black Beauty or Misty of Chincoteague. Yeah, or... Misty of Sh- more like Misty of Chincoteague, The Black Stallion, The Black mm-hmm. Stallion and Fury. But there was another series by a woman named Dorothy Lyons, um, and the one of them was called Silver Birch. That was one I read over and over again. Uh-huh. And in that, a girl wanted to join a, a, a Girl Scout, a mounted Girl Scout troop, and so she needed a horse. So of course, she goes out into the woods. And buy her farm in Wisconsin and buy, and find. She totally horse. wrangles a horse. <laughs> she lessos the horse. <laughs> well, a- she lures it in. But so that's the. But so horse books were quite quite common when I was a kid, and everybody read them, and I read them. I read a lot of them. But since I live in Carmel Valley, California, that's the area where the new method of horse training got its start, and. When I moved to Carmel, and that's Valley. the more gentle horse training, yes. right? It's if, a cooperative you... horse method of horse training. And when I moved there, people that I had as trainers used this method, and it fascinated me. So I thought that I would um, incorporate that into the series. And so it's a Granny Fenley series, you know. No, both she has both her parents. 
there are arguments, but um, but things work there's out. No ghosts or witches or oh, there's yeah. no vampire there's horse. Strange fellow <laughs> students at school. There's strange other girls who are sort of strange. But did you find it in like a, another another um, like a a challenge <coughs> to actually think think about um, like picturing the students or did you picture your daughter oh, no. at a certain age no, or I when pictured you myself at a certain at the, age. okay <laughs> used yourself yeah I mean we're very infused with who we were when we were in middle school we just that are age. we can't help it you know that's sort of the time when we emerged into consciousness mm-hmm. and um so that that part was not hard believe me so when let's go back to that time when you were was when you were first getting the pony or so is that when you also were writing your first short stories or poems about horses or no no i wish no. i could say that but i didn't start writing until i was a senior in high school yeah but i what started you I was what reading. was the or was it just was it an essay in class or something Well, my um, my parents allowed me to go for spring break, which lasted two weeks, to um, to London to friends of theirs and to stay there. And those people were very nice and took me a lot of places and showed me around. And I was a big Anglophile, um, probably because of horses. It's and, big horse country yeah. there. Yeah. And so I came home, and for my senior paper. I wrote a sort of memoirish paper about my trip to London. Um, and I, it was really quite enjoyable to do that. So when I got to college, I uh, immediately signed up for creative writing. And that was at Vassar? Yeah. And I enjoyed it all the time. I enjoyed the creative writing. And then I wrote a novel my senior year. And so I was done for, you know, that was going to be me. So when you were an undergrad, you'd written your first novel? Yes. That was my senior thesis. Was it about Aunt Sarah, the serial killer? No, it wasn't. I'm no. sorry to say. <laughs> that one's coming, though. That's pending. It was That's about pending. the passionate lives of um, college students, you know, college students and their love affairs. Did that influence Moo at all, your later no. novel Moo? Mm-mm. No. That was more observation when you were in Iowa? Um, <laughs> I have to say, you know, I was at Iowa State, and... There was plenty of stuff that had been invented in Iowa State at Iowa State, including the computer, that had, but also including the fax machine, and also including hybrid seed. You know, that had gone out into the world and changed the world. And so I saw um, the land grant university system not as a ivory tower, but as a slippery slope. And just thinking about that, just thinking about these people living on the campus. Um, doing their research, um, create, inventing stuff, thinking up stuff, and then having that go out into the world. That gave me the idea of Moo. Um, but of course, it isn't about Iowa State. Um, and, and people at Iowa State knew it wasn't. But people at, at Michigan State kept swearing that it was about Michigan State, even though I'd never been there. <laughs> well, people will see what they will. Let's let's take a short break, and then and then we'll come back, and um, we'll we'll hear more. Today's guest, Jane Smiley, is here in the studio. Um, Jane will be in conversation with Stephen Moore tomorrow at UMA at five o'clock. Um, you've got Living Writers. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
song People say a man is made out of mud A poor man's made out of muscle and blood Muscle and blood and skin and bones A mind that's weak and a back that's strong You load 16 tons What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine I loaded 16 tons a number nine coal And the straw boss said, well, to bless my soul You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store I was born one morning, it was drizzling rain Fighting and trouble are my middle name I was raised in the cane break by an old mama line Can't no high-toned woman make me walk the line You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store If you see me coming, better step aside A lot of men didn't, a lot of men died One fist of iron, the other of steel If the right one don't get you, then the left one will You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I To the company store. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. And I bet you are too, because that was an awesome version of 16 <laughs> Tons that Jane Smiley chose to play on the show today. Jane, tell us a little bit about why you chose that one. Well, I grew up in a very musical family, but they were all amateurs. My grandmother played the piano a little bit. My grandfather loved to sing, and he sang a lot as we were driving around. That deep voice, too, did he have? Uh, he had a baritone. Yeah. Um, and this was a show that was on network, network TV in the afternoon in the mid-50s, early to mid-50s. So this is probably the first song I remember paying attention to and knowing the words of. I didn't know anything about what it meant. I didn't know anything about the labor movement or anything like that. But because his voice was so vibrant and melodious, and it really is... stuck in my mind. It was called the Tennessee Ernie Ford Show. And you said you were about three or four when you remember watching I this program? I think maybe about four. About that. It was, that would have been about 1953 or four. And it seems also appropriate that you chose the song, not only because it was the earliest song you can remember hearing, and um, but also because of today thinking about the political, like what's passing, what's happening politically. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it reminds us that this attempt um, of 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 
people who work for a living to actually gain some power is an ongoing problem in the U.S. And and um, so uh, let's not talk about that. Not okay. <laughs> Back. Well, we've got. I mean, my writing is very political. You can't not be political as an author. How some um, people would disagree with you, but what's your what's well, your maybe position? It, the problem? Not is, me necessarily. Right. <laughs> um, there's two aspects to it. One is one of them is that um, your protagonist is always in a power relationship with the world that he or she lives in, and if you're writing a novel which is 300, 400 pages long, he or she must live in a world, and so there must you must have a theory about the relationship between your protagonist and the world that he or she lives in. So, because there's power involved, all all novels are political. Sometimes they're benignly political. Sometimes they're overtly political, but they can't help themselves from being political. The, that element of power, even, is that what drew you to, when no. you were writing like A Thousand Acres, were you thinking like Shakespeare's understanding of, of power and family, family, power within family as well? No, I, I don't think it was as explicit as that. I was thinking, why didn't anybody ever sympathize with Goneril and Reagan who had to put up with this crackpot, you know? Um, and I didn't feel that Shakespeare sympathized with Goneril and Reagan either, but I sympathized with them, you know? It was his idea to hand him the kingdom. It was his idea. And so he's going to retain all his former privileges, even though he's He's given it to them, and then they have to put up with him being a, a demented old guy. So so I was on their side, and nobody else was. So I thought, you know, I really need to do my own production of King Lear, and where will I set it? Well, I'll set it in a place that I know, which is north-central north Iowa. And um, so... It's political, but it's political in the sense that the personal and the political are together in the same book. I, um, a lot of my other books, like Ten Days in the Hills and, um, you know, probably Private Life, are more political, more overtly political. But I'm always interested in simultaneously the personal and the political. What was the first for for a thousand acres, Jane? What was the first character? Did you have like an image of a character or or was it more about the land or or was it more about this idea of I'm on their side and that perspective? It was more about the idea of I'm on their side and nobody else's. And when I <clears throat> when I um was thinking about it, I did look into, you know, even feminist scholars and critics didn't dare ever say anything nice about Goneril or Reagan, especially Reagan. Um, and I thought that was really strange. And so, and I also thought it was, somebody needed to talk about things from their point of view, not just from his point of view. Um, I subsequently had different understandings of it. For example, um, I realized later that part of the, Part of what must happen in the theater is that people have to talk. And um, part of what must happen in a novel is that people are quiet. And you go into their minds and you read their minds, but they aren't talking all the time. So that's a way that the novel has of um, revealing itself without, without talk. And I realized that I grew up in a family that was pretty talkative, but nobody was a jerk, 
like King, like Lear is. And that one of the things that bothered me about seeing King Lear was that he just didn't shut up. He just didn't shut up. And that sort of struck me kind of viscerally as annoying. So these are little things, but little things are the things that propel you to try writing something. So, And... And and to make this story, like you, you maybe didn't have any idea of what was going to actually. I knew exactly what was going to happen because I researched the source materials of King Lear. And oh, I, so and then you uh, made yeah. the architecture around it. You and absolutely. you kept to that structure. So oh, was, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I, I read the play five times before I started the novel. I researched the source materials. I came up with some. When you say research the source materials, are you saying for the t- like the setting that you chose, or are you looking oh no back for at the, the for the, like the play itself. the play that that Shakespeare first read, which is called Lear L E I R or um, the source materials of that, the mythological source materials. Ah, and so I came up with some justification for belief that the girls were upset because of an incestuous connection in the source materials. I'm not saying that Shakespeare recognized that or thought that. I'm saying that it was kind of inherent in the structure, in the emotional structure of the story. Was this one of your... Because when you said with um, you, you have this idea and then you just earlier, Jane, you said, and then you create everything around it. Mm-hmm. You know, you start with something. Was this was a thousand acres one of the more the books that you that you felt had a more heavy research component to it or did each of them but in a different way? Well, the first book with a really heavy research component was the Greenlanders. I mean, I knew that the Greenland that there had been a colony of of Norse Europeans on Greenland all through the Middle Ages, and I knew it had died off, and so I wanted to write about that. How did that idea come to you? Was it just a, um, a friend of mine when I was living in Iceland on a on, on a Fulbright, Fulbright okay. told me that, and I said, "Oh, wow, that's, that's really a- interesting," and um, so I got interested in it, and there was enough source material so that it was manageable. It wasn't like writing about Abraham Lincoln or something. You know, the stack of books about medieval Greenland was maybe a foot high. Right. So, <laughs> but there but there'd been plenty of archaeological digs um, in Greenland. And because of the permafrost, the finds were extremely well preserved. So you could go to a museum in Denmark and look at um, woolen gowns that had been unearthed, and you could s- get down on your hands and knees and look under and see the hem stitching, which is a very eerie thing to see, because we're so used to archaeo- to certain archaeological remains being quite ephemeral, like cloth, for example. Um, so that was quite inspiring. And I went to Greenland. I looked around. That was inspiring too. I took a few pictures in the Greenlanders. Um, there are some black and white pictures, and those are ones that I took to give people a sense of that landscape. I wish I, we had a copy of that book on the table with us today, too. But anyway, not to worry, because no, we've got so many others There's a lot to, of books. to talk about. Um, and we've got the book that, that's closest to you right now, Jane, 13 Ways of... of um, Looking at the novel. Looking at the novel. This is, maybe you could tell us a little bit about this project, and then when we come back after break, um, would you mind reading to us a section? Yes, that's fine. So, because this was something like you read 101 novels. 
uh, well, I I walked. I talked about 101, but I really read about 130. Some of them I couldn't get through, and I read all of Proust, but I counted it as only one book. So. Um, I talk about a hundred. I would have counted it as five. I mean, I love that, but I would have you probably counted, counted it, as, it five. as fifty. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened was uh, at at nine eleven, a lot of writers sort of lost their um, mojo just because they were so shocked. And so what I did was, I tried to find the novel that was the farthest away from where we were at the time, which was the tale of Genji, a Japanese novel that was a thousand years old. But, you know, as I was reading it, sitting in my bedroom with all the windows and doors closed, I re- the tale of Genji is really about the ephemerality of life, which was perfectly appropriate to the time. So that got me going. So then I read a bunch of old books from the Middle Ages, mostly in early Renaissance, and they were all very appropriate to our time. But as I kept reading, I got interested in the things that made them differ, but also the things that made them similar to one another. And I decided that I would write 13 ways as a, um, a self, you know, self-education in the nature of the novel. And, and in a way, writing your, your way back to the novel yourself? Yeah, or reading my way back. I, I, I did get back to the novel that I was writing, um, I think in maybe December or January. You know, it took a few months, but I got back to it had a new feeling about it, and then went on. And, and were you and writing this, this book concurrently then? So you no. were doing the reading I and also producing? I was doing the reading, but I wasn't doing the writing yet. And then I, as soon as that book was, that book was good faith. As soon as that book was in, I started writing um, on this. And, and when you said, like, so losing the mojo, um, that must feel like after se- September 11th, like that must have felt quite... Um, strange and terrible because to have this idea like where maybe your way of seeing the world in some ways was through creating these stories or maybe not seeing it but understanding parts of it to be self 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 to be so self-centered as to care whether you were finishing your novel or not that didn't seem appropriate either so you just everybody was just even in california you know um, well, you say just... that because that you said maybe. Well, in the book, in the the intro, you said Californians maybe felt a little distant from it because it was abstract, even though it was a little horrible. abstract. Yeah, because yeah. you could turn off the TV and not think about it. I mean, it wasn't in the air that you were breathing. It wasn't. Um, I didn't know anybody who was personally in the towers, in the towers, or in the planes. Um, but obviously, it was uh, so impossibly huge that it was very difficult to come to any kind of resolution about it. But then you read about the Black Death and you think, okay, so how does it compare to the Black Death? You know? And um, and then, and so various other books that you read, it may, the books that I read in response um, made it seem smaller or larger, smaller or larger, smaller or larger. You know, so it was a good way of getting perspective, I thought. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll hear something from 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel by Jane Smiley. Um, Jane, would you like to do this musical piece? Sure. This is Stew Ball. (laughs) This song, (laughs) I'll do the intro. (laughs) 
So when we come back, well, well here we are. This is a song that I paid very much attention to over and over when I was like 13 and 14 well, this and is, into the horses. This is horses. Peter, Paul, and Mary, you said, was yeah. the version that you especially mm-hmm. loved. So did you like folk music, Jane? I loved Peter, Paul, and Mary, and I loved folk music, and I listened to these songs over and over again. So let's give it a try. Stewball, here we go. Old Stewball was a racehorse. And I wish he were mine. He never drank water. He always drank wine. Well, the fairgrounds were crowded, and Stewball was there. But the betting was heavy on the bay and the mare. I bet on the bay mare. And I bet on the gray, if I'd a bet on old Stewball, I'd be a free man today. And the studio audience <laughs> goes wild. We've well, got- you know, I play the banjo. I play oh, a long neck banjo. And every day... I would have asked you to bring it. <laughs> oh, I couldn't bring it. It's way too heavy. But every day I go over and I sit down and I... I sing two or three songs for like 10 or 15 minutes and um, just because I like it and um, and it's fun. And I think people, more people should do it. So. And you said you come from a musical family. So that yeah, was an a amateur musical family part of the, yeah. the day, perhaps. And what songs do you sing? Like, which ones do you? Oh, I've, lately I've been practicing the Texas River song, a lot of love it song. And one that I sing a lot is, um, oh, oh, there's, uh, now I can't even remember their names anymore. What's another one? I love Lyle Lovett, so I sing that. Um, I can't Did, did you play anymore. the guitar first, or no. what does the banjo, the banjo instrument you went to? infinitely easier than the guitar. Because oh, really? <laughs> never, no one has not, no one's ever said that to me before. There's only five <laughs> strings. There's only five strings. So you have five fingers right. and five strings. And so you're not trying all the time to figure out where your fingers are because they have their own strings. So, and do, I, and do your do your children play like the banjo and my the, son the plays fiddle? the guitar or the guitar? Okay, and the girls don't play anything. Not yet. No. Not yet. <laughs> well, maybe someday. It's kind of it's interesting though to feel like this is a part of your daily practice is the music and, and mm-hmm. the, the playing the banjo. And then, is it? Do you have? I don't know. Like if you, in a regular Jane Smiley day, um, do you? Is the music a way in, and then to thinking about things and it like opening your mind? No, to writing, the music or? comes at the end of the day, and so I just usually while after I start dinner, and then while it's cooking, I just play something or other. Sometimes I sing with my husband. My husband has a wonderful voice, so we sometimes sing together. So we can be looking for a holiday album. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd start on YouTube. I don't think I'd look for the album. It could be that we'll be uploaded on YouTube by some horrifying <laughs> childlike prank on the part of one of our children. We're, we're, don't worry. We're by April, <laughs> April Fool's, right? April That's, Fool. We've made it through. But Or it could be on, because you've got a website going too, Jane. So that might That's be. That's not really, I, I can't, haven't been able to keep that up to date i just say what's how to get in touch with me and what the books are but we haven't i 
the that's website a, isn't a going whole, anywhere. That's yeah. yeah. I hear you. It's on, a full time job on the website. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's get back to thirteen ways of looking at the novel and why thirteen, Jane. Just because it made a a snappy, discordant number for the title, or well, I think by the time I'd come up with all my chapters, we were almost to thirteen. So um, I made the thirteenth one be the bibliography. Um, that comprises almost or more than half of the book, the, the list of books. So the first thing I did was come up with the list of books um, that I had read and wanted to read, which is a very lengthy bibliography of sort of you choose what books you want to read from here. And then, um, and then I thought about ways to analyze the novel. There's two chapters in it called A Novel of Your Own Part One and A Novel of Your Own Part Two, and those are how-to chapters. Um, part one is about writing the rough draft, and part two is about the rewrites and how to do those. Um, and people have found those to be useful, those chapters. Um, some things I discovered about the novel, so I hadn't seen anybody else write about them, so I put some of that in. Um, I do not think the novel started with Cervantes. I thought that I think the novel started with Boccaccio, um, and and then developed from there. But then there is this whole offshoot of novels um, in Iceland called the Icelandic Sagas. So there's some of those in here too. So the novel is an interesting form, um, but it really did take capitalism to give it. Uh, juice and a kick in the pants and general literacy so that it would take off. Well, that is, that is something to thank capitalism for then. <laughs> thank you, capitalism. Yes, thank you for many things, but not everything. And so please don't be un, un, uh, unregulated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, there we go again. Let's see. How about, do you feel like reading a section? Sure, I'll read so we get a, a sense bit. of yeah. the prose. So 13 ways this of looking is, at the um, novel. This is from a chapter called The Art of the Novel, and it's really kind of an analysis, and it explores some author's theories of the novel. I didn't talk about critics. I only talked about authors. But you know, Virginia Woolf had a theory. Tolstoy had a theory. So um, I talked about that for a while, and then I said, I, too, of course, have a theory of art in the novel that grows out of my temperament and circumstances, as well as my experience of reading novels, my observations of how novels work, and the age in which I live. The first aspect of my theory contradicts Henry James and E.M. Forster. I consider it fairly unlikely that a great novel will have either a shape or a rhythm. Each of the literary and non-literary forms that the novel is related to, which I talk about in Chapter 9, offers different challenges and different rewards. The more expansive the author tries to be, given his argument, giving his, to give his argument heft and wide application, the more he tries to stake a claim to greatness, then the more likely the novel will expand outside of the capacity of the reader to maintain a sense of the whole. All of the great, long, many-faceted novels tempt the reader to skim here and there. All of them are more like rivers than pools, with rapids here and shallows there and lovely glades and marshy spots. The sense of wholeness and perspective that James and Forrester consider to be the highest form of novelistic art 
gets lost in the expanding and piecemeal experience of reading such a novel. I would assert that the highest novelistic art is in the intensity of that experience, in the reader having the sensation of brilliant phrases, images, insights, observations, sentences, and paragraphs cascading upon me, or it is in the sharp, painful sense I feel of unrelenting disintegration in the man who loved children, which is as highly dramatic as Euripides' Medea, but far longer and more sustained. But these novels do not stay in my mind as holes. The very sparkle of the words, the impact of each stunning phrase, dissipates or confuses a larger perception of formal integrity. The greatness of these novels, as of many others, is that the experience can only be re-experienced, never quite remembered or grasped, and yet the experience is so subjective and dependent upon my own circumstances when I'm reading that what I think is greatness one time might miss me completely the next time. It is in attempting to elude this very intermittence that Henry James ended up, according to Forster, sacrificing most of his life. The novel is not like a painting or anything tangible, and so in my opinion, it can't aspire to the sort of formal integrity that tangible objects aspire to. My view is that artfulness in the novel lies not in the product but in the process and in the cultural position of the artist or novelist. The making of art, the writing of a novel, requires the artist to exercise free choice in what to depict and how to deploy his materials. Even in societies that don't prize personal and political freedom, let's say in medieval European monasteries where monks were employed in illuminating manuscripts and what they were supposed to do was prescribed to them, and the techniques they were to employ were taught to them, the artfulness came in as an expression of individual personality and intention. A particular face or bird or saint might be depicted with a few extra flourishes or with an unusually expressive posture or gesture. It is free choice that is the sine qua non of art. Even when a craftsman is hired to write a particular story for a particular audience, he may bring a certain amount of free choice to the words he employs, the characters he rounds out with idiosyncrasies, or the themes he touches upon. His motives for introducing his own individuality may not be at all honorable, but it is his sense of agency that is the beginning of art. Thank you, Jane. Um, so was it? how did it feel? putting together this book where it feels like it's a manifesto of these. Oh, it was I, really fun. I mean, the thing about a novel is um, that it has a shape and it has an integrity and you are struggling to find that while you're working on it. Um, and I think that's because it, it grows out of more instinctive feelings, you know, feelings from your limbic system rather than your fore, forebrain. But for an analytical work like this, it's right out of your frontal lobe, you know. And it's much easier to be reading your second draft and or your third draft and come across a few pages and say, oh, that's, that's worthless and toss it out. You know, who cares? You don't. <laughs> Whereas when you're working on a novel, um, your feelings are much more engaged. And so it's it's sometimes quite difficult to understand the shape that you're heading in and that stuff needs to be tossed out. I mean, one of the things we all know about Tolstoy is that he tossed thousands of pages 
um, in order to pare um, War and Peace down to the mere 800 or 1,000 pages that it is, you know. And so um, that, to me, was harder. It's harder to find the integrity and present it in a novel than it is in nonfiction. Nonfiction, you've got to get it right. Um, it's got to be interesting. You've got to keep going. Um, but it, it seems to me that it's more on the surface, and I think that's because it's more from your analytical brain than your than your emotional brain. And from the emotional brain, for that part, do you, does it take maybe taking some wrong turns or missteps? Absolutely, absolutely. And then, so, and writing through it in a way. Sure. And maybe writing back to something or just coming to a Well, full I always stop. say, you know, <laughs> novelists are tortoises. They're not hares. You know, it could be that poets are hares. <laughs> Even short story writers are hares, you know, partly because, <clears throat> excuse me, they have to come up with lots of different ideas. A novelist may have to come, like Proust, you know, all he had to do was come up with one idea and just go on and on and on about it, you know? <laughs> Lucky him. And I was just on a show. Or that he could sustain it, too, though, because <laughs> sometimes it might be hard to go on. But it didn't seem very... He seemed to want to sustain yes. it and expand it, you know? And I was just on a show um, on the BBC about Proust. And I said, what if he had lived till 60? Would he have looked back on this novel and said, well, that was a rough draft of my early life. And the and the wo uh, woman on the show with me said, well, I'm glad he died. <gasps> <laughs> so that he didn't go on and, you know, look and back. And on and on. And <laughs> well, no, on, so, no. He didn't, so he didn't grow, he didn't go have on and look it, back right? and have second thoughts about yeah. it or try something new, you know. That's. But other novelists have lucked been luckier and and been able to go on and write about other things and and uh so well maybe we'll we'll take a short break and then um let's talk about our current novelist here the current <laughs> projects you're listening to living writers i'm t hetzel today jane smiley is here in the studio and we've got the liz behind the glass short break and right back I can 
Welcome back to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Jane Smiley is here. We just heard a little bit of Hotel California. <laughs> well, I moved to California in uh, 1997. And um, as soon as you could, really, right? <laughs> as soon as to, I could, to yeah. get, Go west. But my husband at the time had been born and raised in Iowa and had lived in California for about eight years and come back to Iowa. And he really wanted to get out of there. So um, when the time came to go back, we had the money. Um, we had to pick someplace, and it couldn't be near a nuclear power plant, and it couldn't be near his ex-wife, and it couldn't be north of the uh, the um, the tree line of the, those. Uh, what do they call the big train? The big trees up in Northern California. The redwoods. The redwoods, but... because he felt that they exuded some chemical that made you depressed. Who knows if that's true? So basically, we were stuck with Monterey, which is fine with me. Yeah, that, well, that's that's a place to be stuck with, indeed. Yeah. So we went to Carmel Valley and we looked around, and every time we walked into any kind of a restaurant or bar, they were talking horses, and I said, "This is a place for me." It's, yeah, it's an omen. Yeah. So that's where, um, so that's where we moved, and it's been great. And I love California, but I, there is a quality in parts of California that has this sinister feeling that that Eagle song has. Mm -hmm. And they were from Michigan, some of them. I'm not sure that oh, the all Eagles? of them were. Yeah, some, some of them the, oh. were from Michigan, and they got to California. And this song is really about their that sense that they have, um, in of coming upon coming into California. And, you know, and the you can never live. You can yeah. you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. Well, that's true. And what I love <laughs> is that you said this is one of your favorite road trip songs. Yeah. When you get on the road, this is one of the first ones that goes. Yeah, I like this one. I, I like that whole the whole album that this one is from. The but, guilty pleasure. No, it doesn't yeah. have to be guilty. <laughs> well, it surprises me how many people hate the Eagles. I think some of their songs are quite beautifully written, so I don't know why they get hated, but. Anyway, who cares? Yeah, yeah. Hotel. We're gonna play it again. We're gonna play. <laughs> We're gonna play it all night long. Exactly. exactly. For April Fool's Day, we had a, a day of, of smooth jazz here at the station, which some people um, didn't realize was a, a joke and became sort of uh, terrified that this was the future of, of freeform on the station. So maybe next year, Hotel That's California funny. over and over again, and then it'll get its due. Plus, we can yeah. terrorize the, the haters as well. But um, but Jane back. Back to the many, many books on the table here. Um, let's let's say a few words about Moo, if you don't mind. Okay. It's so um, it's it's very Moo seems really different to me than what we've ta been talking about from your other books. Of course, it's well, Moo is one of my favorites. But when I first started, How so yeah. Well, I'll tell you in a second. When I first started out writing, um, I wanted to write a tragedy, an epic, a comedy, and a romance. And so I knew that the tragedy was A Thousand Acres and the epic was uh, The Greenlanders. Um, and as soon as I finished The Thousand Acres, I really wanted to do the comedy, as you can imagine. So I looked around. Ready. Yeah. <laughs> and I decided I was teaching at Iowa State at the time. And so many funny things sort of happened. And uh, so I thought, okay, I'm going to do a and I was also quite influenced by David Lodge, who had written a book called Small World. And um, I thought, okay, it's time to do a comic novel, a comic classic college novel. Now, the, the thing about college novels is, as I said before, they always portray 
college as an ivory tower when my experience of Iowa State was that it was a slippery slope and a lot of things produced there just slid out into the world. Um, but they had fraternities, they had re weird researchers, they had strange rumors of things that had happened over the years. And I said, okay, this is the one for me. So And a giant pig? Or was that well, all that you? Was <laughs> that, was oh, that was a rumor. That was a rumor. That was one of the rumors. The the other rumor, the and I don't think the pig rumor was a was true, but um, in old meats. I mean that from the very first line, I was <laughs> laughing. <laughs> well, he did have these old buildings, especially around the main part of the campus, that had been used for odd, odd things in the old days. Um, the but the rumor, the only rumor that I think was actually true was the student who could piss over the interstate, um, who had, <laughs> can I say that? Can yeah. I say that? Well, it's, it's been said. It's been said. <laughs> oh, we're live. <laughs> and apparently he had trained himself living on a farm in Iowa to hit posts farther and farther away in the fence line. Well, so that's ambition. He was kind of a genius <laughs> in his way. And I also taught creative writing there. And um, so that was an inspiration. You know, the various papers that the kids would turn in was a great inspiration. And it's it's great that you have one of your, your characters. Is it Tom Monahan who he's Tim the, or Tim? Tim, yeah. And he's teaching and he you sort of see a couple of his exercises that I think he gives to yeah, the students. Those to were do. exercises that I gave my students. Like the the eavesdropping one is could could yeah. you tell us that one? Because that's actually that is very handy. Well I used to give the I used to say, okay, go out and they came class was once a week for three hours and they had to come up with a uh, they had to eavesdrop on something some conversation and write it down they couldn't record it and they had to write it down which meant that they had to take it was harder to take down actually and it would be sort of synthesized through their own mind yeah and then they would bring that in the following week and then the f various students however many parts there were they would um say the conversation they would read the conversation aloud so many of them were unbelievably hilarious you know um the the conversation of uh, of the kids at the, in the union who must have been like 13 and 14 redesigning the american flag and then having this argument about how many stripes were actually in the flag so many of them are fun funny and then once they had eavesdropped which Iowans aren't supposed to do and never do. But so, once they've so, done so it. So impolite. <laughs> <laughs> once they had done it, then the dialogue in the stories that they um, themselves wrote was much better. So their next exercise would be to write a story in which there are three people in a room and something happens. And the dialogue in the stories would be really good because they had done it one time. They had eavesdropped one time. They had listened one time. And they had heard one time. So that was a good exercise that everybody enjoyed, I would say. And it's and it you and you make them and it's funny how it it comes into <laughs> moo, you know? So that's yeah. and so why so I why think it's it, Gary that has that yes. that does that and he <laughs> He's quite proud of himself. He's quite proud of his skills. And resistant to hearing some of the feedback that he didn't yeah. want to hear from the professor, right? Right, right. Because right. he is proud of that, yeah. Yeah. So, and, which is another funny and true element that we mm -hmm. can all recognize. So why is Moo one of your favorites? Like, what is it about this 
Just because it, it's funny, and I think the I think a lot of the jokes are funny. I was in a good mood when I wrote it, and um, if you want something to be funny, it has to be a little daring, but not too daring. Um, and so I got to have that, and then I think that that the parts about the the hog, the giant hog robots, were very fun to write, and um, the parts most most. Did you do any pig research? A hog, bit. hog, sure. rather hog a research. Bit, a little bit, but most um, most college novels, at least, used to be only about the faculty. So I really wanted to get students in. So there's Carrie, Mary, Sherry, and <laughs> Diane. <laughs> I had to read that chapter a couple of times to keep them all straight. <laughs> so there were set, so there were a bunch of students, and so I got to have the students be in there, which was, which to me gave it more life you know and then there's my favorite character chairman x the marxist professor of horticulture um who uh who to me was a an interesting character to make fun of he's and having a, an affair with another woman another woman character and he has to pause in the middle of their affair to call home and ask his wife to take the casserole out of the oven because they have a very even marriage and open they have a very open marriage so i thought those and it was his night to cook it was his night to cook yeah so and i can tell as you're talking about it jane like you do like these these characters are are, Mm -hmm. it's very real to you this this move was some a few years ago now and oh yeah a long time now it's almost 20 what are you working on right now what are some things that are well, I just am finishing up a trilogy called The Last Hundred Years um, that begins in Iowa in 1920 uh, as the first born is, son is born to a farm family. And then it follows the five kids and as they move out into the culture and it goes till 2019. So and this is sounding epic again. <laughs> it's pretty epic. It's pretty epic. It it goes year by year. So the, So the... Stories are woven into the passage of time. And will you have the whole trilogy done before the first one, yes. first piece comes out? Yeah. Is that- first one is out in October. The next one is out about a year from now. Then the um, third one is out the following September or something like that. We wanted to have them come out quickly. Oh, and it's all finished. In the- yeah, it's about finished, yeah. Huh. So that's something to look forward to. Maybe we'll talk via phone for that one. Maybe we Jane. will. We can- and you can pick some more great songs. We'll do. I can. I have, <laughs> next time I'll be prepared. <laughs> no, there's never, there's no, there's no preparing for living writer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you say so. Um, well, you know what? We should mention that tomorrow again, so that everyone knows, Jane Smiley will be in conversation with Stephen Moore at UMA um, at 510. Um, Jane, do you also have some other, are you going, because you just came from Cleveland. Are you no, headed somewhere No, I'm going else? home after, going on home? Friday, yeah. So, so go, everyone in Monterey, maybe you'll <laughs> get to have a, a horse conversation with Jane soon. Maybe. That, yeah. Thank you so much for being on the program, Jane. Thank you it's, for having me. It's, it's lots of fun. Well, it's great to talk with you. Good. And Liz, thanks for engineering. Thanks to everyone outside there in the world listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. I know you're leaving 
WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. Hello and welcome here to the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. It's Wednesday evening here in Ann Arbor and a lot of people still upset about the Michigan Wolverines not making the Final Four. Of course, Michigan was there last year. 